age of change today, aren't we? A little instability. I drive down the road, and it is not only the leaves that are bearing their colors. <laughs> we see red and blue and orange and green, and now we even see little dots of purple dotting the lawns of so many people's homes. But that is par for the course for an election year. This year, though, feels different than the rest. Not unique, per se, not the same, something new. New candidates, new parties, at a new party. An age we are seeing something new because of new issues that face us. The cards have been dealt, and we want to know the stakes in the matter. Is it jobs or economic prosperity? Are human rights on the line? Is it the environment? Is it the preservation of Canadian identity, however defined? Is it the protection of the sanctity of life or religious freedom? Each one of these questions is asked with a particular fear behind it, and there is so much fear today. On our TVs, our computers, our computer screens, they are injected with ad campaigns. Mudslinging and backbiting has begun, although it never stopped. We've become aware about how social media has fundamentally restructured our lives and therefore fundamentally changed how we think politically. Or don't think at all. We think thoughtlessly. And there is a dark side to this that we all know, rumbling from the depths of chat rooms, on Facebook pages, and Twitter feeds, come messages that bear this sense of hate, and disgust, and resentment, and hopelessness. We have seen what these things do when they bubble up from human hearts. Mass shootings in mosques in Quebec, a self-described incel running a van over women in downtown Toronto, Right where I used to get on the subway, to get down to U of T, by the way, at Shepherd Avenue. This is just the tip of the iceberg, for our world seems to be exploding in division, fear and lies and hate and blame. Whether the topic is Donald Trump, Brexit, North Korean missiles, mass shooters, refugees, hurricanes, pipelines or pot, street checks or bathroom stalls. Conflict is now our everyday reality and we feel numb from it. The stakes are high, and it feels like the world is collectively holding its breath, waiting for the next bad thing, the next tragedy. Where do we look to in all this instability? Do we look to ourselves? Do we look to a political candidate, a particular party? Who do we put our hope in? The text says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, Seated on the throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings they covered their faces, two covered their feet, two were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of these voices, the thresholds of the temple shook, and the whole place was filled with smoke. We do not look to ourselves or earthly politics first. We have to look to the king first. In times of political instability, we have to look to the ruler of heaven and earth first. This world cannot contain him. This world's politics cannot define him. This world's corruption cannot restrict him. 
He is the God unmatched, unblemished, unlimited. He is the threefold holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And we have forgotten what holiness means. It is not just a personal thing. It is a political thing. Jesus, God in Jesus Christ, is wholly other from our ways, our ideas, therefore our politics as well. We have so often taken God's Lordship, Christ's Lordship, as ordaining the way things are, and therefore the way they're going to stay. Many love quoting Romans 13, that all authorities is God instituted. This is true. But look at the context of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Live in harmony with one another. That's why he says it. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Therefore, just because the Roman emperor is opposed to the way of Christ, doesn't mean you enact more violence and make the world a darker place. Learn to live with another, one another in peace. But don't forget who the true king is. If God is king, make no mistake, no king bears the, the authority of God. No politician can claim messianic status, whether it is king, of, when it is Christ or Caesar, our choice is always Christ. If God is king, no kingdom or nation or political party has a monopoly on this kingdom. It cannot be held down. As Clarence Jordan, the great uh, Baptist from, Atlanta, uh, from Georgia, once said, the kingdom is always at hand. It is never in our hands. If God is king, while God is patient with our imperfections, using all of us, we must be wary of trying to deliver this kingdom with any other means than its way. Christ's kingdom comes Christ's way. The commander of the armies of heaven does not hire mercenaries. If God is king, this means all the kings of this earth, all presidents and prime ministers, any leader of any community, corporation, tribe, or nation, must realize God is the only true king. And if their rule does not look like his, if it doesn't look like the king of Jesus Christ, they will one day answer to him, and we are free to live a different way to make our politics in conformity with that. If God is king, then we are citizens of a kingdom of heaven, not trapped by any scheme of this world. If anything look, does not look like the cross of Jesus Christ, we are free to live another way. The kingdom of heaven is near, and we are free to live something new, peacefully and lovingly in its midst. It does not mean we uphold the status quo. It means we are free to prophetically move forward. And this does not mean political isolation or withdrawal. This means a holiness that is in the midst of life. A new way forward. What, how do we look to this new way? I'll tell you, as a simple fact of the church in Canada, we simply haven't. If Jesus is our king, we have so often been disloyal to him. This was illustrated to me uh, in a conversation I uh, heard at Women's Coffee Hour as I pastored First Baptist Church of Sudbury. Hopefully they don't listen to the sermon online. <laughs> I don't think they'll go online, so I think I'm safe. <laughs> I observe the fact that Christians are not altogether uniform in their politics. On Wednesday morning, Ladies from my church got together to drink coffee, knit, do crosswords. They even did that adult coloring book thing. <laughs> 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 One morning, 
so I would often work uh, um, in the computer in the sanctuary just adjacent to this room behind the curtain. I would often say, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. One morning they did, and forgot. In casual conversation, one lady expressed her disappointment in her boy, Justin. This was over his handling of the student summer jobs debacle. Another lady turned, your boy? Discussed, how can any Christian vote for any other party that's not pro-life? Well, said the first, when I came to Canada from the Caribbean, the Conservative Party wanted to deport my family and I because they thought that we would bring crime into the country. And they told us that we would steal Canadian jobs or just go on welfare. Pierre Trudeau protected my family, and so that's why I treat his family like my own. This lady turned to, a bit flabbergasted, turned to the lady beside her, attempting to gather peer support. Can you believe her? <laughs> the third lady, a bit struck, said, Indeed, I don't know how anybody could support the Liberals or the Conservatives. <laughs> I have been a member of the NDP my whole life. My parents helped form the NDP with the Baptist preacher Tommy Douglas. And we fought for, for labor rights here in the mines of Sudbury. Sudbury is a mining town, incidentally. Again, lady number two felt a little awkward and had to put her foot in her mouth. The conversation more or less devolved into an awkward silence and then a quick change of subject. And I think they started talking about what they're watching on Netflix or something. It's a good strategy. Many of us have moments like this. Many of us are still surprised that we have moments like this. We're astonished that we find other believers believing different things. You think that? You support him? What do we do with that? Notice a few things about this little event. All three women were thoroughly partisan for various reasons. Their minds were made up long ago and it wasn't about to change. Two, all three could not believe the other's view. There was a simple moment of refusal of empathy and fallibility in that moment. And the solution, or lack thereof, was to just stop talking about something that deeply mattered to the three of them. Perhaps the, this moment of discussing, or rather awkwardly discovering, their political differences, I think the most important thing was forgotten. That, they, that their king was Jesus Christ. That they were sisters of Jesus Christ. That they were a part of a kingdom that is much bigger than any political party. That this kingdom calls us to treat one another as family, even when we think differently. The kingdom of God is not limited to any tribe or party or nation or leader, but we love to say that it is. Why do we do this? Is it power? Is it comfort? Is it an attempt at self-justification? Or is it just well-intended blind zeal? Whether liberal or conservative, no Christian and no church is immune to this. Somewhere down the line, under pretense of good intentions, we Christians got accustomed to running the show. Uh, having cultural dominance, making sure our nation's laws protected us and aided our agendas, and making sure those that thought differently did not have the same opportunities as us. And we even told ourselves that we were selfless for doing so because Christianity is good for everybody, even if they don't think so. <laughs> Somewhere down the line, we decided that the kingdom was not going to come by taking up the cross, but by hook and crook, by wielding the power of pop popularity. Why be innocent as doves when just being shrewd as serpents gets the job done? Because at the end of the day, doves are simple, naive, and stupid, and they don't get the work done. That's what we say, don't we? 
Let's call him Bible now. Somewhere down the line, Christians have decided that they will back this political party, therefore they'll excuse any vice that particular politician or politicians of that party have to protect the cause, demonize the flaw of any opposing politician, make sure their platform is the most uh, agreeable to those with power or money, or at least in Canada, the oil, and label anybody else who thinks differently as either ignorant or evil, or treat them as deluded, or in some kind of subhuman category. And in this case, they are the reason why we're not progressing as a nation. They're the reason why the economy is not growing. They're the reason why our culture is being deluded and our identity is being lost, whatever else. And we stay the course by doing this, ignore, blame, vote, repeat. And we somehow say to ourselves, this is a good strategy to win the nation back for Jesus. <laughs> Whether a church has acquired this strategy at Constantine or through the strategies of enforced state Protestantism at the Reformation or the deluded convictions of manifest destiny of colonialism or the theology that protect, protected slavery and segregation or whether we've simply acquired it by silently condoning a toxic capitalism and consumerism that our churches dare not question question because we fear of offending our wealthier members. Wherever we learned it, this seduction is perennial. Not even the disciples in the Gospels were immune. In the Gospels, James and John, sons of Zebedee, say to Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other of us sit at your left in glory. In other words, I want some power, Jesus. And they probably had good reasons for this. They wanted to do good things. Jesus' reply is, I don't know, you don't know what you're asking. He says, and I paraphrase, if you want to drink of the glory, my cup is the cup of crucifixion. Then he goes on to say, you know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, however, uh, whoever wants to become great among you must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This chair of scripture about the nature of the cross, saving us from sin, we forget this is an answer to a political question. How do I get the power and the glory, Jesus? His response, you won't get it that way. <laughs> this is not my way, it is not the cross. The Son of Man, who is rightly, who rightly deserves all power and honor, the crowns of every kingdom, the riches of all the wealthy, became a servant, healing this forgotten world, serving those who deserted him, forgiving those who even murdered him, faithful on a cross, faithful unto death, the shame and humiliation of crucifixion, counting that on our behalf. God in Christ is first, he is king because he became last. John even writes that, self, that Isaiah, when he looked upon the throne there, he was looking at Jesus. Why? Because the cross is the glory of God. Whatever our political convictions are, they must flow from this reality. We have to ask ourselves whether, uh, whatever our politics are, does it, is it in line with this kind of obedience, this kind of righteousness, this kind of integrity, humility, honesty, peaceableness, sacrifice, love? If we have traded this kingdom this way, and therefore this king, for any other party or platform or politician or way, our words can only be Isaiah's. Woe to us! 
We, the church, are ruined, for we are a people of unclean lips, and we are among a people of unclean lips, for our eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. But then it says, there's good news. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live pole in his hand, and he'd taken the tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, see, he touched my lips, your guilt has been taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I don't know why, but our God doesn't give up on us. We worship a God, when humanity murdered Christ on a cross, he forgave. He answered our very worst with his very best. He died our death just to offer us his life. And when we fail him terribly, he manifests a, char- a character of grace immeasurably. I don't understand it. My limited mind wants to say to myself, this cannot be the case. When I stand condemned in judgment, I'm surprised his judgment is always love. It seems inconceivable, it seems impractical, it seems so unpolitical. But all I can know is that if I'm lost in sin, Christ has found me. And if we can say that we are ruined, we can know our sins have been atoned for. Christ has cleansed us, and he is not done with us, and he does something else, he commissions us. Christ commissions us for his way. The text says, when I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep listening but not comprehend, look Keep looking, but do not understand. Keep their mind, uh, make the mind of the people dull, and stop their ears and shut their eyes, so that they uh, may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds, and turn and be saved. The church has been pushed to the sidelines. I won't say that we've become marginalized or persecuted, because that demeans our brothers and sisters in other countries and communities that are actually experiencing this. Mm-hmm. We've lost our power and prominence, and we complain about it often. Mm-hmm. We have lamented the loss of Christianized Canada, and there is much to lament. But we cannot be nostalgic because we worship the spirit of hope and of life and of the future. Perhaps our, uh, our commission is Isaiah's commission, and in so doing, we might reclaim the church's prophetic voice in a new age. And this, therefore, this age is not our burden, it is our opportunity to speak prophetic truth, prophetic love, live in prophetic hope. Let me unpack these three things. We are called to prophetic truth. When we buy in completely to preserve the political orders of this world, we have bought into a system and a discord that so often trades honesty in exchange for popularity, integrity for expedience, reason for rhetoric, substance in exchange for spectacle. And in the midst of all this, we rarely talk about the things that matter most. We're trying to have a conversation about climate change, and so often politicians want to take the path of least resistance. And the reality is, we all need air to breathe, but nobody wants to pay for it. There are other issues like this. We don't want to admit that the clothes that we wear come, usually come from unjust sweatshops. We might have to change the way we shop and dress, and that might be too inconvenient. I say that as a father of five boys who are like burning through clothes. I don't know what to do with that. Uh, Politically, in the book by award-winning journalist Eves Engler, The Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy, he notes that we don't talk about how we use our military and our banking systems to ensure corporate interests are enforced in the Caribbean, South America, and Africa, particularly with our mining interests, as well as our banks that, since we were the staging point for uh, England, we own most of the Caribbean economy. 
And we do this against the will of the people in those countries, if they are even aware of it. We like to tote that we are a nation of peacekeepers, but we have become blind to the fact that there are so many ways that we are not. We don't want to talk about global, economic, environmental, political strife this way, because it is so much more convenient to go to the uh, so much more convenient to go to the ballot box and put an X on the policy or politician that gets me the most and doesn't have to call me to responsibility, let alone repentance. We don't want to talk about our voting system this way. As fair as it is, there are lots of good things about it. Uh, but we want to ignore that we can engage in voting in a way that is completely ignorant and selfish. And in fact, this system is often designed and depending on us to do so. It's invested in us voting in self-interest and manufactured outrage. Eyes are plugged, ears are shut, minds are closed, hearts are hard, backbiting used to mask real issues, and so much of our politics makes a, it want, many of us want to walk away and discuss. And yet we are called to speak, to speak truth, to speak with honesty. In a world where truth is becoming foreign and we will sound like strangers from a foreign land. But it says, the text says, many will hear this and some will turn to be healed. And so we have to keep speaking. And so we are called to prophetic love. In speaking truth, we are called to prophetic love. Not just the image of the prophets that rain down condemnation, but a new way, as Walter Brueggemann notes, that takes up a, a, a redeemed way of life. And perhaps this is, we might call this even prophetic patience. Prophetic empathy. We began chapel rather awkwardly, I should note, with the passing of the peace. Thank you, Stuart. I included that because it is a small gesture in saying that we are family together. In Jesus Christ, you and me, different backgrounds, different citizenship, different ethnicity, class, gender, different ways of thinking, we have been made family in Jesus Christ, so we might as well treat each other as family. And that might include a hug every once in a while. Anyway, if Jesus is our king, and we are family, we have to guard that bond. And guard that bond with the level of honesty, humility, empathy, and patience, yes, patience, on even our most, uh, what we would use on our most cherished family members. And since God in Christ has reconciled himself, we are now agents of that reconciliation, and that is the way we do it, through that kind of prophetic love. Who is my neighbor? That is the essence of politics. Is my neighbor black or white, immigrant or indigenous, a senior or an unborn baby? Is my neighbor Muslim? Is my neighbor gay? Is he rich or poor, or she, I should say, right there? Uh, criminal or law-abiding or any other difference we've treated differently? Is it just one or the other? The simple answer is no. All of them. We don't get to choose. All are made in the image and likeness of God and all are children of our Heavenly Father. All by God's Word we have inherent dignity, none more worthy than the next. And presenting it this way we can't present false equivalences either because I know that I simply don't face the struggles of so many other than myself. Now I'll tell you, when we hear that, these words make us disillusioned, doesn't it? That my vote doesn't count, or there's no point, no perfect option, so no perfect choice, so why bother? But in good can conscience, we can't choose isolationism. Why do I vote? Desmond Tutu once said that Christians must engage in politics not because of blind faith in the political process. He knew how corrupt it was when he did his work of dismantling apartheid. We participate in politics because we love our neighbors. We love them. 
We don't get to sit back and condemn from on high. We're not allowed to not care. Jesus hasn't given up on this world or on us, and so we have to keep going. This does not mean we know the definitive answers. As I said, Christians have thought various ways about politics over the centuries. There's nothing wrong with Christians working their best with their community, with their peers that they know. I have to confess, I'm a member of a political party. I'm not going to tell you which one here. (laughs) All these things, though, how do we do that, require wisdom for solutions that work in particular contexts. Solutions of the past can become the problems of today. And yesterday's icon can become today's idols. So often in the past when we've proclaimed, we have the kingdom of God, as time goes on, there's a hymn that says, time can make ancient good uncouth. (laughs) That is a hard pill to swallow and wrap our heads around, because we like the easy answers and a place to settle, but we are to live as pilgrims on mission. And that requires, the last point is, a prophetic hope in the face of despair. Look at what Isaiah says, How long, O Lord? He said, Until the cities lie waste, until the Lord sends everyone far away, even if a tenth of the part remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains standing once it is felled. So a holy seed will be there as a stump of the land. How long, O Lord? Isaiah says that great cry that is in the Psalms, echoed in the Psalms, has a tinge here, given the Lord's answer. It's going to get better, right? <laughs> if I do this, that'll fix things, right? God's answer is not comfortable, but it's the truth. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming exile. And so often when we say to God, God, if I do this, you'll do that, right? God, if only I do this, if we do this, that will change things, right? And you'll fix it, Right? We would delude ourselves to say that if we just voted differently in this election, the path of our nation will permanently be back on course, deal done. I don't think so. For instance, I was just driving here this morning and the report from the UN saying is that the damage to our planet from the last century has inflicted so much with the extinction of thousands of species and the warming and poisoning of our oceans that there is damage that might not be repairable. And yet we are still called to change and do what is right, even when crises are still coming. We seek to build a just society, and we cannot help but trust that this world uh, was created good. And therefore, poverty and illness and crime don't belong in this world, and we can work to powerfully curb them. But we we also know that we can't change the human heart, and we can't uh, manipulate society to get rid of the radicality of evil and sin that is still there. I began this sermon saying that this election is something new, but we also have to realize, in tension, there is nothing new under the sun. And so we have this difficult tension with our eschatology, fundamentalist hope that can sometimes become escapism, pie in the sky when you die, or turn to uh, liberal progress and devolve into progress without uh, transcendence or any real possibility of transformation. We have to steer between those two extremes. We can never be so optimistic to say that we can build the kingdom of heaven by our own power. And we can be never so pessimistic to be not willing to try with the Spirit's help. How long, O Lord? How long do we have to do this? Will things get better? The real question before us today is that even if things are getting worse, are we still going to follow Jesus? 
Are we still going to take up this prophetic mantle we are called to, even in the face of despair? It is only then that we can have prophetic hope. Only then can we say that, that tomorrow is in Christ's hands and we don't know what tomorrow brings. And as we walk amongst the wreckage of this age, we have the holy seed in our hearts. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And so today, may you take up your cross, may you hope in the resurrection tomorrow, but may we live the kingdom of heaven right now. Amen.